part two section ten of the freedom of the will by jonathan edwards this librivox recording is in the public domain volition necessarily connected with the influence of motives with particular observations on the great inconsistence of mr chubb's assertions and reasonings about the freedom of the will that every act of the will has some cause and consequently by what has been already proved has a necessary connection with its cause and so is necessary by a necessity of connection and consequence is evident by this that every act of the will whatsoever is excited by some motive which is manifest because if the mind in willing after the manner it does is excited by no motive or inducement then it has no end which it proposes to itself or pursues in so doing it aims at nothing and seeks nothing and if it seeks nothing then it does not go after anything or exert any inclination or preference towards anything which brings the matter to a contradiction because for the mind to will something and for it to go after something by an act of preference and inclination are the same thing but if every act of the will is excited by a motive then that motive is the cause of the act if the acts of the will are excited by motives then motives are the causes of their being excited or which is the same thing the cause of their existence and if so the existence of the acts of the will is properly the effect of their motives motives do nothing as motives or inducements but by their influence and so much as is done by their influence is the effect of them for that is the notion of an effect something that is brought to pass by the influence of something else and if volitions are properly the effects of their motives then they are necessarily connected with their motives every effect and event being as it was proved before necessarily connected with that which is the proper ground and reason of its existence thus it is manifest that volition is necessary and is not from any self-determining power in the will the volition which is caused by previous motive and inducement is not caused by the will exercising a sovereign power over itself to determine cause and excite volitions in itself this is not consistent with the will acting in a state of indifference and equilibrium to determine itself to a preference for the way in which motives operate is by biasing the will and giving it a certain inclination or preponderation one way here it may be proper to observe that mr chubb in his collection of tracts on various subjects has advanced a scheme of liberty which is greatly divided against itself and thoroughly subversive of itself and that many ways one he is abundant in asserting that the will in all its acts is influenced by motive and excitement and that this is the previous ground and reason of all its acts and that it is never otherwise in any instance he says page two sixty two no action can take place without some motive to excite it and page two sixty three volition cannot take place without some previous reason or motive to induce it and page three ten action would not take place without some reason or motive to induce it 
it being absurd to suppose that the active faculty would be exerted without some previous reason to dispose the mind to action so also page two fifty seven and he speaks of these things as what we may be absolutely certain of and which are the foundation the only foundation we have of certainty respecting god's moral perfections page two fifty two to two fifty five two sixty one to two sixty four and yet at the same time by his scheme the influence of motives upon us to excite to action and to be actually a ground of volition is consequent on the volition or choice of the mind for he very greatly insists upon it that in all free actions before the mind is the subject of those volitions which motives excite it chooses to be so it chooses whether it will comply with the motive which presents itself in view or not and when various motives are presented it chooses which it will yield to and which it will reject page two fifty six every man has power to act or to refrain from acting agreeably with or contrary to any motive that presents page two fifty seven every man is at liberty to act or refrain from acting agreeably with or contrary to what each of these motives considered singly would excite him to man has power and is as much at liberty to reject the motive that does prevail as he has power and is at liberty to reject those motives that do not and so page three ten three eleven in order to constitute a moral agent it is necessary that he should have power to act or to refrain from acting upon such moral motives as he pleases and to the like purpose in many other places according to these things the will acts first and chooses or refuses to comply with the motive that is presented before it falls under its prevailing influence and it is first determined by the mind's pleasure or choice what motives it will be induced by before it is induced by them now how may these things come together how can the mind first act and by its act of volition and choice determine what motives shall be the ground and reason of its volition and choice for this supposes the choice is already made before the motive has its effect and that the volition is already exerted before the motive prevails so as actually to be the ground of the volition and make the prevailing of the motive the consequence of the volition of which yet it is the ground if the mind is clearly chosen to comply with a motive and to yield to its excitement the excitement comes in too late and is needless afterwards if the mind is already chosen to yield to a motive which invites to a thing that implies and in fact is a choosing of the thing invited to and the very act of choice is before the influence of the motive which induces and is the ground of the choice the son is beforehand with the father that begets him the choice is supposed to be the ground of that influence of the motive which very influence is supposed to be the ground of the choice and so vice versa the choice is supposed to be the consequence of the influence of the motive which influence of the motive is the consequence of that very choice and besides if the will acts first towards the motive before it falls under its influence and the prevailing of the motive upon it to induce it to act and choose be the fruit and consequence of its act and choice then how is the motive a previous ground and reason of the act and choice so that in the nature of the things volition cannot take place without some previous reason and motive to induce it and that this act is consequent upon and follows the motive which things mr chubb often asserts as of certain and undoubted truth 
so that the very same motive is both previous and consequent both before and after both the ground and fruit of the very same thing two agreeable to the forementioned inconsistent notion of the will first acting towards the motive choosing whether it will comply with it in order to it becoming a ground of the will's acting before any act of volition can take place mr chubb frequently calls motives and excitements to the action of the will the passive ground or reason of that action which is a remarkable phrase than which i presume there is none more unintelligible and void of distinct and consistent meaning in all the writings of duns scotus or thomas aquinas when he represents the motive volition as passive he must mean passive in that affair or passive with respect to that action which he speaks of otherwise it is nothing to the design of his argument he must mean if that can be called a meaning that the motive to volition is first acted upon or towards by the volition choosing to yield to it making it a ground of action or determining to fetch its influence from thence and so to make it a previous ground of its own excitation and existence which is the same absurdity as if one should say that the soul of man previous to its existence chose by what cause it would come into existence and acted upon its cause to fetch influence thence to bring it into being and so its cause was a passive ground of its existence mr chubb very plainly supposes motive or excitement to be the ground of the being of volition he speaks of it as the ground or reason of the exertion of an act of the will page three ninety one and three ninety two and expressly says that volition cannot take place without some previous ground or motive to induce it page three sixty three and he speaks of the act as from the motive and from the influence of the motive page three fifty two and from the influence that the motive has on the man for the production of an action page three seventeen certainly there is no need of multiplying words about this it is easily judged whether motive can be the ground of volition taking place so that the very production of it is from the influence of the motive and yet the motive before it become the ground of the volition is passive or acted upon the volition but this i will say that a man who insists so much on clearness of meaning in others and is so much in blaming their confusion and inconsistence ought if he was able to have explained his meaning in this phrase of passive ground of action so as to show it not to be confused and inconsistent if any should suppose that mr chubb when he speaks of motive as a passive ground of action does not mean passive with regard to that volition which it is the ground of but some other antecedent volition though his purpose and argument and whole discourse will by no means allow of such a supposition yet it would not help the matter in the least for one if we suppose an act by which the soul chooses to yield to the invitation of a motive to another volition both these supposed volitions are in effect the very same a volition to yield to the force of a motive inviting to choose something comes to just the same thing as choosing the thing which the motive invites to as i observed before so that here can be no room to help the matter by a distinction of two volitions two if the motive be passive not with respect to the same volition to which the motive excites but to one truly distinct and prior yet by mr chubb that prior volition cannot take place without a motive or excitement as a previous ground of its existence for he insists that it is absurd to suppose any volition should take place without some previous motive to induce it 
so that at last it comes to just the same absurdity for if every volition must have a previous motive then the very first in the whole series must be excited by a previous motive and yet the motive to that first volition is passive but cannot be passive with regard to another antecedent volition because by the supposition it is the very first therefore if it be passive with respect to any volition it must be so with regard to that very volition of which it is the ground and that is excited by it three though mr chubb asserts as above that every volition has some motive and that in the nature of the thing no volition can take place without some motive to induce it yet he asserts that volition does not always follow the strongest motive or in other words is not governed by any superior strength of the motive that is followed beyond motives to the contrary previous to the volition itself his own words page two fifty eight are as follow though with regard to physical causes that which is strongest always prevails yet it is otherwise with regard to moral causes of these sometimes the stronger sometimes the weaker prevails and the ground of this difference is evident namely that what we call moral causes strictly speaking are no causes at all but barely passive reasons of or excitements to the action or to the refraining from acting which excitements we have power or are at liberty to comply with or reject as i have showed above and so throughout the paragraph he in a variety of phrases insists that the will is not always determined by the strongest motive unless by strongest be preposterously mean actually prevailing in the event which is not in the motive but in the will but that the will is not always determined by the motive which is strongest by any strength previous to the volition itself and he elsewhere abundantly asserts that the will is determined by no superior strength or advantage that motives have from any constitution or state of things or any circumstances whatsoever previous to the actual determination of the will and indeed his whole discourse on human liberty implies it his whole scheme is founded upon it but these things cannot stand together there is a diversity of strength in motives to choice previous to the choice itself mr chubb himself supposes that they do previously invite induce excite and dispose the mind to action this implies that they have something in themselves that is inviting some tendency to induce and dispose to volition previous to volition itself and if they have in themselves this nature and tendency doubtless they have it in certain limited degrees which are capable of diversity and some have it in greater degrees others in less and they that have most of this tendency considered with all their nature and circumstances previous to volition are the strongest motives and those that have least are the weakest motives now if volition sometimes does not follow the motive which is strongest or as most previous tendency or advantage all things considered to induce or excite it but follows the weakest or that which as it stands previously in the mind's view has least tendency to induce it herein the will apparently acts wholly without motive without any previous reason to dispose the mind to it contrary to what the same author supposes the act wherein the will must proceed without a previous motive to induce it is the act of preferring the weakest motive for how absurd is it to say the mind sees previous reason in the motive to prefer that motive before the other and at the same time to suppose that there is nothing in the motive in its nature state or any circumstance of it whatsoever as it stands in the previous view of the mind that gives it any preference but on the contrary the other motive that stands in competition with it in all these respects has most belonging to it that is inviting and moving and has most of a tendency to choice and preference this is certainly as much as to say there is previous ground and reason in the motive 
for the act of preference and yet no previous reason for it by the supposition as to all that is in the two rival motives which tends to preference previous to the act of preference it is not in that which is preferred but wholly in the other and yet mr chubb supposes that the act of preference is from previous ground and reason in the motive which is preferred but are these things consistent can there be previous ground in a thing for an event that takes place and yet no previous tendency in it to that event if one thing follows another without any previous tendency to its following then i should think it very plain that it follows it without any manner of previous reason why it should follow yea in this case mr chubb supposes that the event follows an antecedent as the ground of its existence which has not only no tendency to it but a contrary tendency the event is the preference which the mind gives to that motive which is weaker as it stands in the previous view of the mind the immediate antecedent is the view the mind has of the two rival motives conjunctly in which previous view of the mind all the preferableness or previous tendency to preference is supposed to be on the other side or in the contrary motive and all the unworthiness of preference and so previous tendency to comparative neglect or undervaluing is on that side which is preferred and yet in this view of the mind is supposed to be the previous ground or reason of this act of preference exciting it and disposing the mind to it which i leave the reader to judge whether it be absurd or not if it be not then it is not absurd to say that the previous tendency of an antecedent to a consequent is the ground and reason why that consequent does not follow and the want of a previous tendency to an event yea a tendency to the contrary is the true ground and reason why that event does follow an act of choice or preference is a comparative act wherein the mind acts with reference to two or more things that are compared and stand in competition in the mind's view if the mind in this comparative act prefers that which appears inferior in the comparison then the mind herein acts absolutely without motive or inducement or any temptation whatsoever then if a hungry man has the offer of two sorts of food to both which he finds an appetite but has a stronger appetite to one than the other and there be no circumstances or excitements whatsoever in the case to induce him to take either the one or the other but merely his appetite if in the choice he makes between them he chooses that which he has least appetite to and refuses that to which he has the strongest appetite this is a choice made absolutely without previous motive excitement reason or temptation as much as if he were perfectly without all appetite to either because his volition in this case is a comparative act following a comparative view of the food which he chooses in which view his preference has absolutely no previous ground yea is against all previous ground and motive and if there be any principle in man from whence an act of choice may arise after this manner from the same principle volition may arise wholly without motive on either side if the mind in its volition can go beyond motive then it can go without motive for when it is beyond the motive it is out of the reach of the motive out of the limits of its influence and so without motive if so this demonstrates the independence of volition on motive and no reason can be given for what mr chubb so often asserts even that in the nature of things volition cannot take place without a motive to induce it if the most high should endow a balance with agency or activity of nature in such a manner 
that when unequal weights are put into the scales its agency could enable it to cause that scale to descend which has the least weight and so to raise the greater weight this would clearly demonstrate that the motion of the balance does not depend on weights in the scales at least as much as if the balance should move itself when there is no weight in either scale and the activity of the balance which is sufficient to move itself against the greater weight must certainly be more than sufficient to move it when there is no weight at all mr chubb supposes that the will cannot stir at all without some motive and also supposes that if there be a motive to one thing and none to the contrary volition will infallibly follow that motive this is virtually to suppose an entire dependence of the will on motives if it were not wholly dependent on them it could surely help itself a little without them or help itself a little against a motive without help from the strength and weight of a contrary motive and yet his supposing that the will when it has before it various opposite motives can use them as it pleases and choose its own influence from them and neglect the strongest and follow the weakest supposes it to be wholly independent on motives it further appears on mr chubb's hypothesis that volition must be without any previous ground in any motive thus if it be as he supposes that the will is not determined by any previous superior strength of the motive but determines and chooses its own motive then when the rival motives are exactly equal in all respects it may follow either and may in such a case sometimes follow one sometimes the other and if so this diversity which appears between the acts of the will is plainly without previous ground in either of the motives for all that is previously in the motives is supposed precisely and perfectly the same without any diversity whatsoever now perfect identity as to all that is previous in the antecedent cannot be the ground and reason of diversity in the consequent perfect identity in the ground cannot be a reason why it is not followed with the same consequence and therefore the source of this diversity of consequence must be sought for elsewhere and lastly it may be observed that however much mr chubb insists that no volition can take place without some motive to induce it which previously disposes the mind to it yet as he also insists that the mind without reference to any superior strength of motives picks and chooses for its motive to follow he himself herein plainly supposes that with regard to the mind's preference of one motive before another it is not the motive that disposes the will but the will disposes itself to follow the motive for mr chubb supposes necessity to be utterly inconsistent with agency and that to suppose a being to be an agent in that which is necessary is a plain contradiction page three eleven and throughout his discourses on the subject of liberty he supposes that necessity cannot consist with agency or freedom and that to suppose otherwise is to make liberty and necessity action and passion the same thing and so he seems to suppose that there is no action strictly speaking but volition and that as to the effects of volition in body or mind in themselves considered being necessary they are said to be free only as they are the effects of an act that is not necessary and yet according to him volition itself is the effect of volition yea every act of free volition and therefore every act of free volition must by what has now been observed from him be necessary that every act of free volition is itself the effect of volition is abundantly supposed by him in page three forty one he says if a man is such a creature as i have proved him to be that is if he has in him a power of liberty of doing either good or evil 
and either of these is the subject of his own free choice so that he might if he had pleased have chosen and done the contrary here he supposes all that is good or evil in man is the effect of his choice and so that his good or evil choice itself is the effect of his pleasure or choice in these words he might if he had pleased have chosen the contrary so in page three fifty six though it be highly reasonable that a man should always choose the greater good yet he may if he please choose otherwise which is the same thing as if he said he may if he chooses choose otherwise and then he goes on that is he may if he pleases choose what is good for himself etc and again in the same page the will is not confined by the understanding nor any particular sort of good whether greater or less but it is at liberty to choose what kind of good it pleases if there be any meaning in the last words it must be this that the will is at liberty to choose what kind of good it chooses to choose supposing the act of choice itself determined by an antecedent choice the liberty mr chubb speaks of is not only a man's power to move his body agreeable to an antecedent act of choice but to use or exert the faculties of his soul thus page three seventy nine speaking of the faculties of the mind he says man has power and is at liberty to neglect these faculties to use them aright or to abuse them as he pleases and that he supposes an act of choice or exercise of pleasure properly distinct from and antecedent to those acts thus chosen directing commanding and producing the chosen acts and even the acts of choice themselves is very plain in page two eighty three he can command his actions and herein consists his liberty he can give or deny himself that pleasure as he pleases and page three seventy seven if the actions of men are not the produce of a free choice or election but spring from a necessity of nature he cannot in reason be the object of reward or punishment on their account whereas if action in man whether good or evil is the produce of will or free choice so that a man in either case had it in his power and was at liberty to have chosen the contrary he is the proper object of reward or punishment according as he chooses to behave himself here in these last words he speaks of liberty of choosing according as he chooses so that the behaviour which he speaks of as subject to his choice is his choosing itself as well as his external conduct consequent upon it and therefore it is evident he means not only external actions but the acts of choice themselves when he speaks of all free actions as the produce of free choice and this is abundantly evident in what he says elsewhere page three seventy two three seventy three now these things imply a twofold great inconsistence one to suppose as mr chubb plainly does that every free act of choice is commanded by and is the produce of free choice is to suppose the first free act of choice belonging to the case yea the first free act of choice that ever man exerted to be the produce of an antecedent act of choice but i hope i need not labour at all to convince my readers that it is an absurdity to say the very first act is the produce of another act that went before it two if it were both possible and real as mr chubb insists that every free act of choice were the produce or the effect of a free act of choice yet even then according to his principles no one act of choice would be free 
but every one necessary because every act of choice being the effect of a foregoing act every act would be necessarily connected with that foregoing cause for mr chubb himself says page three eighty nine when the self-moving power is exerted it becomes the necessary cause of its effects so that his notion of a free act that is rewardable or punishable is a heap of contradictions it is a free act and yet by his own notion of freedom is necessary and therefore by him it is a contradiction to suppose it to be free according to him every free act is the produce of a free act so that there must be an infinite number of free acts in succession without any beginning in an agent that has a beginning and therefore here is an infinite number of free acts every one of them free and yet not any one of them free but every act in the whole infinite chain a necessary effect all the acts are rewardable or punishable and yet the agent cannot in reason be the object of reward or punishment on account of any one of these actions he is active in them all and passive in none yet active in none but passive in all etc five mr chubb most strenuously denies that motives are causes of the acts of the will or that the moving principle in man is moved or caused to be exerted by motives his words page three eighty eight and three eighty nine are if the moving principle in man is moved or caused to be exerted by something external to man which all motives are then it would not be a self-moving principle seeing it would be moved by a principle external to itself and to say that a self-moving principle is moved or caused to be exerted by a cause external to itself is absurd and a contradiction etc and in the next page it is particularly and largely insisted that motives are causes in their case that they are merely passive in the production of action and have no causality in their production of it no causality to be the cause of the exertion of the will now i desire it may be considered how this can possibly consist with what he says in other places let it be noted here one mr chubb abundantly speaks of motives as excitements of the acts of the will and says that motives do excite volition and induce it and that they are necessary to this end that in the reason and nature of things volition cannot take place without motives to excite it but now if motives excite the will they move it and yet he says it is absurd to say the will is moved by motives and again if language is of any significancy at all if motives excite volition then they are the cause of its being excited and to cause volition to be excited is to cause it to be put forth or exerted yea mr chubb says himself page three seventeen motive is necessary to the exertion of the active faculty to excite is positively to do something and certainly that which does something is the cause of the thing done by it to create is to cause to be created to make is to cause to be made to kill is to cause to be killed to quicken is to cause to be quickened and to excite is to cause to be excited to excite is to be a cause in the most proper sense not merely a negative occasion but a ground of existence by positive influence the notion of exciting is exerting influence to cause the effect to arise or come forth into existence to mr chubb himself page three seventeen speaks of motives as the ground and reason of action by influence and by prevailing influence now what can be meant by a cause but something that is the ground and reason of a thing by its influence an influence that is prevalent and effectual three this author not only speaks of motives as the ground and reason of action by prevailing influence but expressly of their influence as prevailing for the production of an action 
page 317, which makes the inconsistency still more palpable and notorious. The production of an effect is certainly the causing of an effect, and productive influence is causal influence, if anything is, and that which has this influence prevalently, so as thereby to become the ground of another thing, is a cause of that thing, if there be any such thing as a cause. This influence, Mr. Chubb says, motives have to produce an action, and yet, he says, it is absurd and a contradiction to say they are causes. For, in the same page, he once and again speaks of motives as disposing the agent to action by their influence. His words are these, as motive, which takes place in the understanding, and is the product of intelligence, is necessary to action, that is, to the exertion of the active faculty, because that faculty would not be exerted without some previous reason to dispose the mind to action. So from hence it plainly appears that when a man is said to be disposed to one action rather than another, this properly signifies the prevailing influence that one motive has upon a man for the production of an action, or for the being at rest, before all other motives, for the production of the contrary. For as motive is the ground and reason of any action, so the motive that prevails disposes the agent to the performance of that action. Now if motives dispose the mind to action, then they cause the mind to be disposed, and to cause the mind to be disposed is to cause it to be willing, and to cause it to be willing is to cause it to will, and that is the same thing as to be the cause of an act of the will. And yet this same Mr. Chubb holds it to be absurd to suppose motive to be a cause of the act of the will. And if we compare these things together, we have here again a whole heap of inconsistencies. Motives are the previous ground and reason of the acts of the will, yea, the necessary ground and reason of their exertion, without which they will not be exerted, and cannot in the nature of things take place. And they do excite these acts of the will, and do this by a prevailing influence, yea, an influence which prevails for the production of the act of the will, and for the disposing of the mind to it. And yet it is absurd to suppose motive to be a cause of an act of the will, or that our principle of will is moved or caused to be exerted by it, or that it has any causality in the production of it, or any causality to be the cause of the exertion of the will. A due consideration of these things which Mr. Chubb has advanced, the strange inconsistencies which his notion of liberty, consisting in the will's power of self-determination void of all necessity, united with that dictate of common sense, that there can be no volition without a motive, drove him into, may be sufficient, to convince us that it is utterly impossible ever to make that notion of liberty consistent with the influence of motives in volition, and, as it is in a manner self-evident, that there can be no act of will or preference of the mind without some motive or inducement, something in the mind's view which it aims at and goes after, so it is most manifest that there is no such liberty in the universe as Armenians insist on, nor any such thing possible or conceivable. End of Part 2, Section 10